from the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. Often in the story of St. Ignatius of Loyola, we zero in on the cannonball moment. It's the instant in Ignatius' story when everything changes, even if the would-be saint hasn't yet fully realized it. But even more important than that war wound is the 11 months that follow, that long, tedious period of recovery and reflection and reading. It's then that Ignatius encounters a book on Jesus Christ, and through that book, the God of Jesus Christ, the God who had been loving him all along, and speaking to him through his desires and experiences. That's the moment in the Ignatian tradition that best frames today's conversation. Our guest is Jesuit Father Joe Tetlow, currently the director of Montserrat Jesuit Retreat House in Lake Dallas, Texas, and the author of the new book, Considering Jesus, the Human Experience of the Redeemer. The title speaks for itself. Father Tetlow's book is an opportunity to pray with Jesus' own experiences, to see how those experiences speak to and inspire us. You'll hear, too, how Father Tetlow's own experiences shape his writing and retreat work, and how they can guide us in our own daily lives. Perhaps we, too, will be inspired as St. Ignatius was. Perhaps we'll meet God in a new way by reflecting on Jesus Christ, Jesus' experiences, and what Jesus has to say to each of us. You can get your own copy of Father Tetlow's new book, or one of his many others, by checking out the links below. And now, here's Father Joe Tetlow. Father Joe Tetlow, welcome to AMDG. We're so glad you're with us today. I'm very glad to be here, Eric. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, of course. And we're excited because we're talking about your brand new book called Considering Jesus, the Human Experience of the Redeemer. So the first question, there are, in fact, a lot of books on Jesus, as I'm sure you know. So I want to know what made you want to write this one and, and what makes this one different? Well, the truth is I have wanted to write it for about 30 years but I kept being moved to one place to another and never got around to it. Coronavirus was a blessing to me because I was imprisoned in, in, in the retreat house here where I could look out of my window onto the lawn in the lake and all I had to do was write a book <laughs> and read and pray. So then I had the chance to do it. But most of the studies that are out there are really academic studies. They are excellent for Bible study. For example, Elizabeth Johnson's book, she calls it Consider Jesus. It's actually about Jesus Christ. Mm. It's Christology. It's a brilliant book. She really is a good writer. Gerhard Lofink, the German Jesuit, what's it, what's it? It's something like the life of Jesus, what he wanted, what he did. And go and he gets very Lofink is trying to talk about experience. The difficulty is we do not yet know how to talk about experience in really clear and confident ways. So Lofink keeps going back to say, well, Matthew did this, and Luke did this, and we lose Jesus a little bit. Mm. Um, it's more prayer. This book that I wrote is from prayer, of prayer, for prayer, and it's really about prayer. But the prayer is not just this, you know, vague sort of going into the meaning of the scriptures. 
The prayer is a prayer of consideration. Consideration takes the word of God, these gospel stories, and my world and weaves them together. The prayer of consideration. I'll say some more about that later on. But that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to write about it. The other reason, big one, is that the social commentaries on the Gospels are really invaluable. The work of men, the Jesuit Jerry Neri, for example, or Bruce Molina up at Notre Dame, their commentaries are about being in a being in a culture of shame, being in an oral culture. What does that mean about the way you see things, about the way you perceive what is in your memory? They really are very, very valuable study. And above all, I'll tell you, Eric, on the web are many Jewish websites which are just precious for the insights and the information they have. They really are very, very valuable. So those are the, the big reasons why I wanted to write them, because I wanted people to find a really fresh way to pray about Jesus's experience. I like I like what you said about um, the need to uh, confidently speak about Jesus's experience and and weave our own experience um, in, into that. And it, it occurs to me, you know, you're you're a Jesuit, um, and and you know, Ignatius of Loyola, I'm sure, is never terribly far from your mind. Um, and and you know, his story begins right with having. Uh, with bringing his own experience into conversation with that, um, you know, he's reading a book about Jesus, right? Does, does does that ever kind of enter your own kind of consideration on on your writing, especially as you're as you're writing about Jesus? That um, you know, uh, the, the the foundation of Ignatian spirituality um, blossoms from this moment of um, you know one man uh, reading a book about Jesus. What, what does that mean for you then, as a writer who's 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 presenting to the world a book about Jesus? Well, um, Eric, there's a lot in there, um, so we have to sift it out a little bit. But let me start with this. Um, the question often arises uh, about knowing Jesus and believing in Jesus. That's a common expression, I believe. Well, I don't believe in Jesus. I know Jesus because the Gospels are history. It's true that they're written by believers, but whatever makes anybody think that those who write, for example, the latest two-volume, 11,000-page work on Lincoln, what makes you think that author didn't believe about Lincoln? Of course he did. Our knowledge is interwoven with belief. Mm. We have to be confident of what we see, what's given to us by information. So for me... One of the reasons I wrote this book is to insist that, that the Gospels are history and they tell us about an experience which we can recognize as human experience. The one we believe in is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is both man and God. He is anointed by the Father. He came into our flesh, not to save me, but to save us, to save humankind. So that's, that's what's behind this book, insisting that we know Jesus, we believe in Jesus Christ. And that means we can trust my human experience to relate to Jesus' human experience. So that's, that's one of the brief answers, Eric. <laughs> right? Yeah, I like that. Uh, 
I, I like that idea of, of of being able to trust my experience because Jesus, we, because we have that historical historical evidence. So, so can, maybe you can say a little bit more about that. How how does this understanding of Jesus's historical context? You've already spoken a little bit about this, but maybe drop us in a little deeper. How does this understanding of Jesus's historical context um, and lived reality help us enter more deeply into that relationship with Christ? Well, I think. I think the answer to that is that we, we are accepting that Jesus had the feelings, the touches, the tastes, the fears that I have. He is not foreign from me. He has these feelings. He grew in wisdom, age, and grace. That means that as a boy, Joseph had to say, no, no son, you don't, hold, you don't hold the teeth, you hold the handle. That's it. That's a way to do a song. He had to learn these things. He had to learn about God. He had to learn how to love. He had to learn how to find out to do only what the Father wants done. And, of course, he had the perfect parents to do that. So we learn about our experience having to do with his experience. That's really what it comes down to. So when we find out that that really when when Jesus said, "Give us this day our daily bread," he was talking about that evening. That's when they ate, and he didn't know where he was going to eat. He was walking around begging, so he was asking for something real, and that means that I have to watch what I mean by "Give us this day our daily bread." So that I think is. The main thing about this is that his experience is human and so is mine. And the commentaries, the social, anthropological, historical commentaries help me see how he did this. What did he feel when the woman touched his, his hem, his garment? What did he feel? So I felt power go out of me. What did he feel? Have I ever felt that? Have I ever felt that someone really did something because I was there? It allows me to, to kind of, you know, to reflect on my own self. Yeah. What do you say? I, I know you, you direct retreats. I'm sure you've directed um, countless retreatants. What do you say to somebody who is who's praying with these stories of Jesus um, and, and are trying to do as you've suggested, you know, kind of, you know, understand the, the shared human experience and so okay, Jesus has, has experienced this and I experienced this, but then they come to a point in their prayer where they say, okay, well, Jesus was a carpenter who lived in this certain period of time. Um, you know, Jesus wasn't a parent. You know, he wasn't an, an IT engineer. He, you know, he wasn't a pilot. Um, but I am those things. How do I reconcile the differences in our stories? Then how do we? How do we kind of? encounter the shared humanity, but also say, well, Jesus didn't experience, Jesus, historical Jesus didn't experience this thing. How do I bring my story into it? What do you, what do you say to folks that, that have those kinds of questions? Well, that's a real puzzler. I, uh, I, I don't know that I've ever come at this from exactly that angle, but I, I would say that, um, think of Ignatius. Ignatius faced that same issue, all right? He didn't know it, but he did. Well, what did he do when he considered, when he prayed about Jesus of Nazareth? We're talking about prayer now. We're not talking about theory or about academic work. Well, he said, when you pray about Jesus, you ask, who was there? What did they say? And what did they do? 
Let me tell you, that's an excellent entry into contemplation. It really, I mean, it's been used now for centuries. Now we have to recognize that there's been 500 years of experience between Ignatius and us. 500 years of scholarship, of, of exploration, of science, of technology, all right? So how do we enter into Jesus's experience? I say we need to recognize what I call the grammar of experience. When, when we talk, when I'm talking, I'm using grammar, but I don't pay any attention to it, all right? But I am using grammar. Subject, verb, object, okay? When we look at an experience, we are actually also using a grammar. What is it? What is it? Right? We haven't started investigating that yet. We really haven't. You know, Heidegger has done some work. Uh, Josiah Royce did some work. But we haven't asked that question. And I think the answer is a grammar, not a philosophy, not a, a grammar. When you look at an experience, you ask, what is the context? That's where social studies helps. What is this person's perspective on this? What does this person perceive? What They perceive something different from what I perceive if they're living 2,000 years ago. What did they perceive? Can I find that out? What values moved them and kept them working? And what did they want? What are their desires? And when Jesus did make a decision, what, is his, what were his decisions? So those elements, look, when, when a, a genius of looking at diamonds and evaluating them has a beautiful diamond in his, puts his little speck on it on, he has a definite perspective on what that diamond is. He knows what he needs to perceive. Where are the weeds? Where are the lines? Where are the weeds? How brilliant is it? What does he want? Well, he wants to find this isn't the most valuable diamond he's ever seen, so he can make a mint with it. It's got a value in looking at this diamond. The value also is to serve somebody who wants to know what it is. Then, then he wants to do that. He decides and he tells him what he sees. Looking at an experience is the same thing. We look at this experience as in its context. Then we look at the perspective that he had. So what did Jesus, how did Jesus see his early discussions with the Pharisees? The first time we know he did that, they were in Peter's house. And when they wouldn't, when they were shocked by he said, I forgive you your sins. He didn't start giving them a lecture on what the scriptures say. He knew all of that. But what he did was say, look, which is easier? Which is easier, to say, get up and walk, or to say, your sins are forgiven? And he said, son, get up and walk and take them. And then he left them alone. He was gentle that first time. So his perspective there was, I want these men to listen to me, to hear what I'm saying. That was his desire. His value was to get the authorities to accept him. That was it. Well, as time went on, they refused, they refused, they refused. And they kept persecuting him. So he had to use other means. So what I'm saying now is that when you look at Jesus's experience, looking at it as experience, you find out that his experience 
is human as mine is human. And he loved the way I loved. I loved. He ate the way I ate. He saw human persons in the perspective of, the, of what's been revealed to us. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. When you look at Jesus' experience as experience, you see your own. Yeah, I like that a lot, and I also it makes me it makes me think of um, um, you know we're you know we're all the body of Christ, right? Christ, you know, it continues to work in the world through us, and I I I wonder if you can't use that same way of proceeding to kind of see Christ in other people as well. How is Christ working today, um, in each of us? You know, by by kind of sinking into as you said the context and the values. What are they trying to 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 accomplish, and why? Um, is that, would, that, is that be, would that be fair to say, or, or am, I, uh, am I off the rails here? No, Eric, I think you wonder the, the big question is, is, how does, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, how? How am I going to know what you mean by you're the way? He said, well, I gave you an example that as I did, you're also to do. Right? And what did he do? He served. He healed. He loved people. He was cherishing little children. He was tender-hearted. The woman in dying, you know, nobody said anything to him. He saw her and he knew, oh, that woman, she, oh, that's, oh, and he went right over and he said, what did he say? Don't cry. Don't cry. Well, what does that tell me about following Jesus in his way? It tells me that I should be tender and I should be close. And I don't stand at a distance. And above all, he respected every single person. He respected them. He respected the shysters, the crooks, you know, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. There's a woman washing his feet, and they get shocked at it. He says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. He respected that woman. And the woman taken in adultery. So that's how we do it. We find out, and let me tell you something, Eric. When I first started doing this, I was afraid. I would ask Jesus, well, how did you feel about realizing that Judas was a thief? And I, I would think, I don't know if I should be doing that. I don't know if I should ask Jesus that. I really did. I, I really felt a bit of concern about it. It took me a little while, but I kept hearing him say, Learn of me, because I am meek and humble of heart. And I gradually understood that by meekness, he didn't mean weakness. He meant that he could, he could docilely see what this, con what this circumstances calls for and do that. Meekness is strength contained. So when the Gedderines, he had just healed their worst enemy, and the man sitting there healed and clothes and clean and everything else, and they get scared. They think he, he must know the devil, so they ask him to go. Instead of saying, well, you know, I just, you know, you have other problems. I, instead of that, he just went. He just went. He was not going to be accepted by these people now. He actually got into the boat and left. That's meekness. Well, I had to learn that Jesus means that meekness even for me. 
He wants me to know what he's gone through. Ignatius says that in the fourth, the fourth point in the third week, he said, I've asked what Jesus wanted to suffer. All right? Is this bad? Ignatius is telling me to ask what Jesus wanted. So he did this. And little by little, I realized that we could all do this if we knew how. That's why I wrote this book. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Let let's seize on that last point. You're 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 pointing directly to some some um, instances in the spiritual exercises, and I think a lot of folks uh, are probably listening to this podcast and and wanting to learn something uh, new of Ignatian spirituality. And I, I think just listening to you, it, it's very clear how Ignatian spirituality factors into just your whole approach to to prayer and, and talking about relationship with Jesus. But I wonder if you could point to one or two specific things for listeners. Um, that shows how Ignatian spirituality um, really kind of undergirds uh, the thesis of this book or the way you approached writing about this book. Uh, so folks can kind of walk away with, uh, oh, there's something new for me to, to, to think about in my own prayer life, my own Ignatian spirituality. Well, well that's really good. That's a, that's a perfect question, Eric. And I would say there are two takeaways of that. The first takeaway is the prayer of consideration. Ignatius, in his text, in Spanish, uses considerar, and it's cognates. I counted 68, 67 or 68 times. He uses contemplar about 72 or 73 times. In other words, and if you add, I ponder and I deliberate to the consideration, he the contemplatio ad amor, right? The kind of a, four points. You know what the four points are? Consider that. Second point, consider that. It's the prayer of, what is the prayer of consideration? I take Jesus' experience and I ask what Ignatius asks at the end of every prayer I ask, I apply it to myself. That's considering. Considering my experience and what Jesus has just experienced, I apply that to my... Ignatius was doing this. We have to relearn to do it. And the way we relearn is by asking, how did Jesus see this? What did he want in this... You know, when they're out there with the, with all these Gatorines, all these uh, pagans in there. It's the third day, and, and the, the, the disciples see 4,000 men they forget the women and children, and, and they're hungry, and they see a problem. What Jesus sees is women who don't have food for their babies or for their husbands. And what does he say? I, I feel pity for them. He tells us what he feels. Many times, I must do this. He tells us what he feels. I must go to the other team. And then he multiplies the loaves. Right? So the prayer of consideration really has to be brought back. It is not being used well enough now. And the grammar of experience is exactly what will help us get back. Instead of asking who was there, what do they do, what do they say, which frankly, Eric, doesn't really work much anymore. I don't, I, I've given 30-day retreats. And it, this is why I had to switch to the grammar of experience. So that's the first thing. 
prayer, the prayer of consideration, is crucial in the spiritual exercises text. And it's also very crucial to the experience, which is spiritual exercise. That's the first thing. What was the second thing now? We talk about um, Lexio Divina. Oh, it's a big thing now. Lexio Divina is I read, um, I meditate, I pray, I contemplate. That goes back to Cashin. All right, so it's an old way the Benedictines practice it. There are two changes, which makes it Ignatian. If you use Alexio Divina for the retreat, the Ignatian retreat, do it this way. You read. You consider. Use the grammar of experience. What is Jesus' perception? What is he looking at? What does he want? What does he decide to do here? How does that feel? What does he feel? That's the the third thing is to pray, and that's I apply it to myself, right? And then the fourth thing is not contemplate. When we pray, when we pray with scripture, the last thing we do is discern what is the next good thing to do. We are, we live, we live, Ignatian spirituality is for the marketplace. We keep saying that. Well, tell me how. Here's how. That the Lexio Divina is, I read, I consider, I pray, and I discern what the next good thing to do is. So those are the two takeaways, I would say. Remember the prayer of consideration. And go back to the text, if you doubt what I'm saying. Look at the text, especially the, the contemplation for love, right? All four points, consider, not contemplate, but consider, consider, and then Look at the Lexio Divina Ignatiana, the Ignatian. So those are the two takeaways. Yeah, that's that's great. Wow, I'm, I'm like I have to go and, and think on this now. This is really helpful. The last question I, I had had written down here, you know, as we're praying with Jesus, as, as we're as we're kind of going on our spiritual paths, we um, you know inevitably meet things that we are resistant to in Jesus's story, right? In, in the invitation that God gives us. Um, and failure, you know, the we're thinking about the you know the standard of Christ, right? Poverty, rejection, humility—not not particularly um, awesome things—and uh, yet that's kind of the the invitation and 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 what can often cause us to to go, whoa, 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 do I really want to do this? So, last question: as as you've been praying with this book, um, but then as you've been guiding people just in your whole career as as a as a spiritual director and 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 as a Jesuit, how do you help people? Um, to, to move beyond the, the places in Jesus' story that they feel resistant to, that they feel that they um, can't, I can't go any farther, this, this is too hard. How do you help people to, to, to move past that, um, to, to become the person God has invited them to become? Well, I, I, rec I, I really recognize the difficulty that you're pointing out to, you know, we resist. <clears throat> there are a lot of things to say about that. And, and as you know, some of the some of the mystics are, are good on that. For ourselves, I would say the, the two big things, Eric, are how I perceive myself and how I really perceive my God. So on myself, the truth is, the truth is, we are a splendor of creation. A splendor. I was thinking this yesterday. 
Um, where was I? Oh, on, on the campus here. There were people coming, make retreats, and they were walking around. And I thought, I remember one time reading a long essay about what a miracle it is that you can walk on two feet and not fall on your face. You know, we're the only animal that does that. We're the only animal that does that. We're the only animal that reflects on ourselves. And we are embedded in a culture in which negative self-image is one of the pervading vices. How many people go to psychiatrists? Why? Because of the way they think of themselves. We of all people, of all people, must recognize that we are immensely privileged. We are really privileged that we know Jesus Christ. We receive him into ourselves, not from above, but from within matter, within the earth. We of all people should recognize, I am going to live forever. The way Jesus did. This is the great thing about the resurrection. Jesus didn't go anywhere. He stayed here 40 days. He hung around. Why? Huh? To let us see what's going to happen. What, what, is, what is resurrected life going to be like? Look at Jesus. What did he do? He found his friends. He fixed breakfast for them. He said, do you have anything to eat? I recognize that. <laughs> they all said, oh, it's him, all right. <laughs> so let's recognize our own transcendent dignity. And accept it. The dignity of being baptized <clears throat> into the death and resurrection of Jesus. The dignity of belonging to the church. Do you recognize, Eric, now that not Catholic sources or Christian sources, but secular surveys say one third of the people on the face of the earth today believe in Jesus Christ. One third. How in the world did that happen? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman puts into flour. It just spreads. So there it is. The first thing is who you are. Accept. Don't you understand you are the temple of God? And the spirit of God dwells in you. That's the first thing. And the other thing is the way we appreciate our God. <clears throat> what is God's name? Well, everybody would say, I am. No, no, that's not true. Not now, not now. God's name now is Father. Father. And the truth is, the truth is, he is a tender, merciful Father. I love the way Aquinas points out that God is infinite love and infinite justice. Well then, in justice to himself, when he pours out his love and he's pouring it onto a sinner, what does it come as? Mercy. It comes as mercy. That's how, that's how Aquinas saw the Father. And I think that's the biggest thing of all. Our God is, a, is love. He loves. And the best way we can know God is by knowing love with and for others. To know what love means to me is to help me understand what love means to God. So there's two things I would say about getting over the resistance. But understand, Eric, you don't get over it once. You don't 
It's not like dumping the pail into the bucket. No, no. Uh-uh. You do it today, and then you do it this afternoon, and then you do it tomorrow morning. <laughs> right? Why? Because we are limited. We are in time. Never forget that time is in everything in us. Time. So when I give my heart to God, that's great for now. How about tonight? Oh, well, I'd have to do it again. And the Lord will always show you how. As far as being afraid of God calling me to suffer, number one, ask God not to do that. It is correct to ask God, give me a restful night and a peaceful death, meaning no suffering. Right? There was an old Jesuit used to say, oh, son, just pray that you wake up dead, <laughs> that you wake up dead. So we ask God for that because God will give it to us if we ask him in Jesus' name. But as far as suffering goes, remember Jesus. He knew what he was going to go through, at least from the time of his transfiguration. He knew what was going to happen in detail. They talked about his exodus, Moses and Elijah, and they both, they saw. And yet, he could tell his disciples with a quiet heart, the Son of Man must be handed over to evil men, and they will kill him. But he must rise again on the third day. And to me, that's really interesting that Jesus says, I must rise. It was his duty. It was the work that the Father gave him to do. And he could only do what he saw the Father doing. Father Tetlow, thank you so much for joining us today, for your work, for your book. Again, the name of the book is Considering Jesus, the Human Experience of the Redeemer. It's out now from Loyola Press. We hope you'll come back sometime and talk with us again. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference Communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series, Now Discern This, by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, Connect with your local vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>